Scott. Hello, I'm Julie. And this is a Good Story is Hard to Find podcast. Where two Catholic friends talk about the books and movies they love and the traces of the one reality that lie below the surface. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne today. Famous guy. Yeah, so little reality. Yes. Well, kind of in tons of reality. Now that that's perfect. <laughs> right. Allegorical reality. Yes. Yeah. So We're, this is for Halloween. Mm. And I guess this comes out the day before Halloween this year. It does, yeah. Yeah, yep. so perfect. Mm-hmm. Young Goodman Brown and Rappuccini's Daughter, two of my favorite Hawthorne short stories. Wow. And have you read more than these, I assume? Lots, oh, lots yeah. of Hawthorne. Mm-hmm. I actually have. I really like Nathaniel Hawthorne. And so I have the, what is it called? The Library of America Tales and Sketches. So this is mm. all of his short stories. And it is a very thick book. It's about maybe 1,200 pages. Oh, wow. Yeah. he. We think of him as writing The Scar- Scarlet Letter, of course. And maybe we remember The House of Seven Gables. But he was primarily a short story writer. And in some ways, not not exactly like, but in some ways, he kind of makes me think of Mark Twain, who wrote so many short pieces. And, um, of course, Hawthorne didn't have that acerbic wit. But he wrote some stuff that had a lot below the surface. And he also was driven by his time, which, of course, he was from, let's see... We looked this up, and now I can't. Oh, 1804 to 1864. Right. So he was before Twain, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so definitely. Mark Twain would have been. In fact, he was I around the Civil up. War. Yeah, right. But And he was before Dickens, or kind of overlapped with Dickens. Edgar Allan Poe wrote reviews of his stories. Ooh, wow. <laughs> yeah, all these people that we, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson commented on him. He was friends at the end of his life and when, um, oh gosh, now I'm blanking on Moby Dick. Oh, uh, Melville. Yeah. Melville. Mm-hmm. And he were good friends for a while. And really? He was That's kind neat. of his mentor for a while. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So... It was really funny because he wrote all these short stories for magazines and newspapers. And, you know, this is how he's earning a living. And you don't think of him that way. And when he would be asked about different stories, he never thought of any stories like, say, these two as any better than any of the others. He was always just kind of interested to see, oh, which ones did you like? Hmm. What did you like best? And the thing that I find interesting about him is, He's always got this really intense look at what is faith and how do you live it? Because, of course, that would have been really important in that culture in that time period. But also, he was affected a lot by the fact that one of his ancestors was John Haythorn. Mm -hmm. Hawthorne added the W to try and distance himself from this ancestor, who was the only judge at the Salem witch trials who never repented of his actions. Holy smokes. Yeah, so Mm -hmm. you'll see him often dealing with questions of inflexibility, judgment, what does this mean for faith and for living with others, even while a lot of times the the stories are, they range from humor to weird fiction in a lot of ways, so. That's interesting. 
So yeah, just looking at Haythorn, of course, you know, he died well before uh, <laughs> Hawthorne was born. But that's interesting that that would be such a huge influence on him. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you say that, it, it makes sense, you know, as far as young Goodman Brown. I mean, yeah, that's that's something. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's uh, that's highly influential on that setting, right? That's mm-hmm. a we'll talk about it. It's in a Puritan setting. Right. And also of interest for Catholics in particular, his daughter Rose, who was uh, his last child and born in 1851, so he called her his late bloom Hmm. because he died in 1864. But she became a Catholic nun and began an order. She ministered to women who, and it may be everybody, but definitely her ministry started with people who had cancer. And there was, of course, no treatment, and they would die in great pain. And she helped take care of a friend of hers who was well off and then said, oh, my goodness, well, there's all these people who aren't well off. No one's taking care of them. And so her order, I think, yeah, so she started an order that was named after St. Rose of Lima. The Dominican Sisters of Hawthorne is how they're now known. Wow. Yeah. And so That's they amazing. were, yeah, they were named the Servants of Relief for Incurable Cancer. And it was begun in 1900. And she was their first mother superior with the name Mother Mary Alfonso. And wow, that no order mm-hmm. is still going, although I think they're greatly reduced now. Yeah. Because now there's so much more care for people. In it says, in 2013, they had 53 sisters, hmm. so they've closed their two cancer homes, they, but they're still around, mostly in Philadelphia and Atlanta. And so think of how that would have served people in the times before anybody knew anything about cancer. Yeah. Plus, it says that everybody thought cancer was highly contagious, so they were really afraid of catching it. And they went ahead and did it. They didn't care. Wow. Yeah. Very nice, very nice. In the Wikipedia entry here at the very end, it says that um, in 2003, uh, Cardinal Edward Egan approved the movement for her canonization. Oh. She now has the title Servant of God in the Catholic Church. Oh, that's step one. Yeah. Then is blessed and then is full saint. Right. Huh. Nifty. I had no idea. That's really cool. Yeah, it's a side trip, but... I just mm-hmm. thought it was so interesting, and I actually came across her in um, looking up some stuff about Flannery O'Connor one time. And Flannery O'Connor had written a foreword to some very sentimental, sappy book that was written about a young child, a real young child who was suffering horribly from a terrible disease. But it was at the bequest of these nuns who were active, since they're active in Atlanta, they were in Georgia. And they knew of her, and they asked her to write this forward. And she was like, oh, my gosh, this is the least likely stuff for me to like. But she admired this kid's story so much and these nuns. And that's when I was like, wait, they were started by who? And so I found out about Rose Hawthorne. That That is neat. Yeah. So it's just kind of an unlikely Catholic Mm, connection. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Yep. Did not know that. (laughs) Yeah. So... As I say, nice. it was a bit of a side trip, but that's mm-hmm. your saint story for the day, everyone. <laughs> very good, very good. Yeah. All right. So, so yeah, so uh, first we were going to talk about Young Goodman Brown. 
Yes. Would you recap is, for yeah, us? Yeah, absolutely. So that's uh, the shorter of the two. And it was also written first mm-hmm. um, in 1835. And the story takes place... Um, I don't know. It, it seems like it's earlier than that, right? You know, sort of. Puritan a, times. Yeah, Puritan times. Okay. So it is earlier than uh, where Hawthorne is living. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there's this guy. His name is Goodman Brown. And he lives in Salem. He lives in Salem. That's right. <laughs> and he's got a wife named Faith. And uh, she's been his wife for only two or three months. Um, and he tells her that he's going to go on an errand in the forest. And unless I missed it, I don't know for sure what that errand is. Um, I don't think it ever says. Okay. Um, she says, no, please stay. And he's like, no, I got to go do this thing. And, but when we get back, it's going to be magnificent and uh, (laughs) we won't have to do this anymore. (laughs) Right. So, um, then he goes off into the woods and there he meets an older man. Um, he's dressed similar to himself, and he's got a uh, a staff that is serpent-like. <laughs> and it turns out that he's you know the devil. So um, now the the devil uh, talks to him, and he says. Uh, you know, we're going to talk, uh, let's, while we're walking, we're going to reason, right? Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that how it was put? It's like, you know, let, let's <laughs> yeah. reason while we walk. Yes. And, um, then, uh, you know, th- there's a lot of discussion between the two and then, um, he starts to encounter people that he knows also in the woods, like the, the, one of his old religious teachers was there mm-hmm. and, Let's see. I remember he heard his reverend um, and another guy, deacon, Uh a reverend and and a deacon. deacon. Yep, they were talking to each other. And then um, he he gets to witness. um, Well, he hears hears a bunch of voices, and then he can distinctly hear his wife's voice. In the air, flying overhead. Yeah. And then he goes, follows where that goes, and then he reaches a point where there's this ceremony going on, and it's like a black mass. And all the people that are in there are a bunch of people that he knows, and a bunch of people that he he holds up in high regard. And mm-hmm. they're all uh, celebrating this, you know, anti-mass or black mass. That's what I'd call it. I don't know if those words oh, were yeah, ever that, used. Yeah. yeah, well, they they wouldn't have been Catholic, but essentially, yes, mm-hmm. ex- that's exactly what it is. Right, right. And then he's um, he's shaken by that. I mean, it it's it really. <laughs> so so here's the part you know at the end. So he well, they're it, also they're inducting ahead. people into this unholy church essentially. Right. Yes, that's right. And he There's, steps forward because he's. So shaken. Right. And so does faith. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the newest acolytes are brought forth. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And, uh, yeah. So he goes so, all the way. Yeah. And they, they yeah. So anyway, oh, yeah. Sorry. So he does go all the way. Right. And, uh, um, but then the question is, does it, any of it, has any of it really happened or not? Which <laughs> is, it's a really ambiguous ending. So he wakes up as if from a dream. And then he's not sure if it ever happened, but it's 
regardless of whether it has or not, it has deeply affected him. And, um, you know, that, that last line in the, in the story is tough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there it is. Read it. Yeah. Um, it is, let's see, where does the sentence start? It's a long one. <laughs> um, wow, that whole thing is a sentence. Okay. On the Sabbath day, when the congregation were singing a holy psalm, he could not listen because an anthem of sin, oh, there's a period, an anthem of sin rushed loudly <laughs> upon his ear and drowned all the blessed strain. When the minister spoke from the pulpit with power and fervid eloquence, and with his hand open on the on the open Bible of the sacred truths of our religion, and of saint-like lives and triumphant deaths, and of future bliss or misery unutterable, then did Goodman Brown turn pale, dreading lest the roof should thunder down upon the gray blasphemer and his hearers. Oh, another period. I'm sorry, <laughs> I, I looked through it, I couldn't find a period. Often, waking suddenly at midnight, he shrank from the bosom of faith, and faith is his wife at that point. Yes. Um, or, you know, at all points, it's capital F, faith. And at morning, or eventide, when, his fa- when the family knelt down at prayer, he scowled and muttered to himself and gazed sternly at his wife and turned away. And when he had lived long and was born to his grave a hoary corpse, followed by faith, an aged woman, and children and grandchildren, a goodly procession, besides neighbors not a few, they carved no hopeful verse upon his tombstone, for his dying hour was gloom. The end. <laughs> Bam. Wow. Yeah. So he had a, a, a whole life after that. Children, yeah. grandchildren. Yeah. Uh, his he must wife. have been a real treat to be around. <laughs> yeah. Poor Faith. He said, well, I had this dream. And, uh, I don't know if it was a dream. Yeah, we no. don't know. Right. It, we, it's, it's one of those things like, you know, the ambiguity of uh, other stories. It's like, to me, it, uh, it loses a lot of its meaning if it's not real. But in this case, um, there is, it's like, you know, what he thinks of the other people is affected by even if it was a dream. Right, and to let that affect him so that it overcomes everything he can see and know about them in person mm-hmm. is kind of the question. How much will you trust your feelings and your dreams? Mm. How much do you think it's real? Because I feel as if the ambiguity is actually more in the beginning. We don't know why he feels like he has to go to the woods. We don't know why he says, on this night of all nights, says Faith, must you go? We don't know what that night is. And and that has a dreamlike quality, doesn't it? Right. And Mm. so we also don't know why he's arranged to meet this guy. At first, you think he's met him by accident, or I did. That's what I thought, too. Mm -hmm. Right. And then it becomes clear they're actually, they had an appointment. Hmm. And so you don't know why would he make an appointment with this guy who's clear is demonic and eventually you realize the devil. And at the end, the thing to me that makes the ending less ambiguous about whether it's a dream or not is that when he's looking up and he hears the voices in the air and he's like, oh, no, that's not faith. Is it in a pink ribbon flutters down and he picks it up and she's distinguished by her pink ribbons at the very beginning. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But at the end, when he comes back to the village Faith with her pink ribbons was there. Right. So, or pink ribbon. So, I feel like 
that kind of tells us that it actually was a dream. Hmm. But he lets it affect him so much that... That's interesting. Okay, so it's not as ambiguous as I thought, but... Well, there could be more than one ribbon, too. Yeah, yeah. um, So if if it is a dream, then, you know, this is really... It's like this character, then, is extremely suspicious of everybody's motives for the rest of his life and he doesn't mm-hmm. believe in the goodness of any people. Right. That's amazing. And when you think about yeah. him setting this in Salem and think about the judge, mm-hmm. even though that's not given to us in the story, it adds another thread of why do you distrust people instead of trusting to their goodness? Evidence of your eyes and, you know, your senses and I mean, because that's how we live. Can't go around judging people like that. Right. And it is difficult to have your your faith in people uh, mm-hmm. shattered by, you know, well, here's these people that, uh, you know, we, again, have held up in high regard. We think the most of them, these are our examples. And then they turn out not to be that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, with the Salem witch trials... You know, so his own ancestor um, being one of those people. Right. Yeah. And unrepentant. And unrepentant, no less. Yep, they deserved it. Yep, they were witches. (laughs) Wow. Well, and there's one of the things where they're inducting everyone into the Black Mass or into the Devil's Church or whatever you call it. And he's... The the speech that the sable form gives hmm. is – it was enlightening to me in a couple ways. One is he's talking about all the bad things these people have done, and I'm like, oh, these crimes seem very modern. You forget people have been doing this stuff forever. And he says, this night it shall be granted to you to know their secret deeds, how hoary bearded elders of the church have whispered wanton words to the young maids of their households, how many a woman eager for, for widow's weeds has given her husband a drink at bedtime and let him sleep his last sleep in her bosom, how beardless youths have made haste to inherit their father's wealth, and how fair damsels blush not sweet ones have dug little graves in the garden and bidden me the sole guest to an infant's funeral Hmm. so you're just like oh so these are all the the bad hidden secrets that are being called forth these are all the reasons these people would say well we'll just be evil Mm -hmm. and these are the things he's suspecting everybody of Wow. You feel mm-hmm. because he's hearing them talk and be irreverent and hope, hoping to go and be evil. And it, 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 whether it's real or whether it isn't, and that is still fairly ambiguous when I realize ribbons is plural, but um, he lets it affect his entire life. <laughs> Absolutely, he, turns, he does. Yeah. 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 He turns but, away from faith, his wife, and faith, his faith. Right. Wow. Yeah, that's something. Um, one of the lines that I um, highlighted that just struck me was um, when he met the, the woman that used to teach him, who was his religious teacher. And mm-hmm. then there was this interaction between her and the devil that makes it obvious that she's definitely with him, right? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. He says, that old woman taught me my catechism, said the young man. And there was a world of meaning in this simple comment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. May, you know, so, wow. Yeah. Well, and it strikes me, I hadn't really thought of it until just this second, but <clears throat> you look at the institutional church. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we the people are the church, the Catholic yeah, church yeah. especially, but um, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of, but any church, and people do terrible things, even while they're supposed to be good. No do question. You, yeah, yeah. Do you let that shake your faith? What is your faith grounded in? Is it grounded in these people? And, of course, some of it has to be. We have to work together and be a community and trust that we're all trying our hardest. But when people are exposed as being weak— what do we do? Yeah, that's a that's something that's come up lately, right? <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. It is something that I think that I've learned. Um, you know, because an initial reaction to some of this stuff is, oh, well, you know, maybe all this stuff isn't even true. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm wasting my time. Maybe this all this stuff that uh, I've been taught and I believe is coming from people that. Uh, you know, aren't the, aren't the, aren't who I thought they were, right? Let's just put it that way, you know, and then, but the, there's a couple things wrong with that thinking. Um, but the, the main thing is it's not them that I should have the faith in. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's the, right. it's Jesus, you know? And right. so, um, but we know, we know for sure, you know, we're fallen and we know for sure that we're sinners, everybody. Yeah. There's nobody that isn't. So we're all dealing with our own stuff and and all that. And it doesn't mean people aren't going to, some people are going to be worse than others because they, honestly, I feel like they've been allowed to get away with it more Mm. and they just keep going and going. Um, Yeah. And it's the idea of, that's where correcting other people, and I don't want to get into this idea of it, and I can point at you and say, unclean. <laughs> but, but it's the idea of accepting correction for yourself, maybe. It's yeah, well, no question. That's it. part it's, of it, too. You know, yeah. It should be a reflection on us, and that's uh, interesting in this story, too. I mean, the, the devil is like a reflection of young Goodman Brown. I mean, he he looks like it all the time, right? Yeah, so he looks he, like his father. Right, yeah. right. So... Um, it's the same thing. Yeah. And if we, if we come out of this feeling, okay, well now we're the authority and I can point at people, you know, I, I always said that if, if you have some preacher pointing at everyone and, and giving you a list of who's going to hell, then you're in the wrong place. Yeah. You know, that is not something that should be happening. <laughs> right. Cause, yeah. cause that person has issues, right? That person has their own stuff. Well, right, and yeah. it's all the more reason for us to kind of be careful of ourselves. Right, and that's that's the thing. It we it should, it should not make us into judges. And that's it should what make happens. us into compassionate people. Right, yeah. and young Goodman Brown is not that way. He's not stopping to think. I actually went to meet this guy. I had an appointment with him. Mm. And of course, he's thinking, I, my guess, because they don't say it, is he's going to prove him wrong. Mm-hmm. So for one thing, be careful how you tempt yourself, I would say, is another point of this story. That's, he shouldn't have been out there. He too. should have stayed home with Faith. Mm-hmm. 
on whatever this night of all nights was, you know, whether it's Halloween or whatever. Yeah. Stay away. That's and, a really good point. Yep. Yeah. 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 So yeah, it, it does make it does make a difference that he he was going there on purpose, right? I think so. And he and it does say that right above the the old woman taught me my catechism line. It says, "So as I was saying, being all ready for the meeting and no horse to ride on, I made my mind to foot it." So even though at the beginning he was like, "I have to go to this," and it would look like a chance meeting, like you said, it says right mm-hmm. there that he was ready for the meeting. Yeah. Yeah. And then it says for they. They tell me that there is a nice young man to be taken into communion tonight. <laughs> and I wonder if he knows at that point that it's him. Yeah. He must be, right? He must. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, I got to read this whole thing all over again because now it's like a totally different light. I need to look at it. Because, yeah. you know, with the amb- ambiguity in stories, like I said, I usually think well you know if it's not real you know, like a ghost story what uh what do i want to think of the hunt no not not hill house what was that other one uh turning of the screw the turn of the oh, screw yes. right yes. to me that story is just no fun whatsoever if it wasn't real right oh absolutely yes. it was real right it was real. yeah mm-hmm. so um here now and then you know i have the same attitude at the end of this one where i'm like well you know but then as i thought about it more and then as i we, we talk about it it makes sense that it wasn't. And what it really is, is it's about young Goodman Brown's attitude towards everyone else and what their fallen nature has done to him. Mm-hmm. It's frozen him. It's, it's made him so he can't possibly function, really. Yet he has his family and everything, but he is, like you said, he can't be a pleasure to be around. Yeah, um, and he's so he absolutely. That would be a tough dad to have. Oh my gosh! Mm-hmm. And he's and you think of all the people who were in his community, the neighbors, not a few. Yeah. So there were all these people who he was being really suspicious around and sour and not being able to trust them. And you know what did he do to those people by his judgment and never looking in a mirror hmm. to see his his fault was the first fault. Yeah. You no. Know? Yeah. And in, in in a sense, it's pride. I can go and talk to this guy, and I'll be okay. You feel mm. like? Because I felt like when they said there's going to be a nice young man inducted, I felt like he didn't know it was him. That's what I, I thought too. But in, in this light, it makes me think: How could he not? Well, I felt as if what he was doing, and this again, because it's a very open story, we can read our own inclinations into it. But I felt as if he was saying. Um, I'm going to go check this out hmm. and overcome it. You know, yeah. I'm going to go look and see if it's really true and what's going on there. So mm-hmm. I really know. And he fell prey to it because the temptations that were offered to believe ill of everybody were too great. And when it was came down to faith, and it shows faith being inducted into that circle also, he totally believes it. Hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah. So he's believing all the lies of the devil. Um, one of the things I did come across somewhere, or I, I don't remember where, was for the Puritans, the wilderness was considered to be where the devil was. Oh, yeah. And right. Christ was tempted three times in the wilderness, and young Goodman Brown essentially is tested three times when you consider 
the woman who taught him his catechism, mm. the reverend, and the deacon, and then his wife. Yes. Ooh, that's cool. And he fails all mm. the tests. Yeah. He never falls back on God. He just believes what he's told. Right, right. Yeah, and he does say in here, uh, there was no church. Um, you know, when we're out here in the forest, there is no church. Right. You know, and you, you think at the beginning he's talking about a building, but he's not. <laughs> he's, he's like, this is... This is yeah. pagan territory we're in. Yeah. And that's made clear, too, by the fact that along with the townspeople are all these criminals and villainous people and Indians, savage Native Americans, whatever you want to call them, savages, mm-hmm. they would have said, demons, powwows, I think he called them or something like that. Mm-hmm. But basically meaning that they were pagans. They didn't worship the true God. Yeah, yeah. So, they're all joined together in mm-hmm. this church in the wilderness. Yeah. Yeah, and then during the ceremony, you know, when he sees faith, and then this sentence is cool, you know, uh, by the blaze of the hell-kindled corch- torches, mm-hmm. the wretched man beheld his faith, the and the wife, her husband, trembling before that unhallowed altar. And the the figure that's um, presiding says, "Evil is the nature of mankind. Evil must be your only happiness. Welcome again, my children, to the communion of your race." And right before then, he says, "Depending upon one another's hearts, ye had still hoped that virtue were not all a dream. Hmm. Now ye are undeceived." <laughs> but see, that can also be reversed. Depending on one another's hearts, you know. He's lying. If he's yeah. truly the devil, and it does say as if his once angelic nature could yet mourn for our miserable race. Yeah, yeah. So, it's it's definitely the devil. And he's saying, so he's everything he's saying is a lie. Virtue is not a dream. This yeah. thing they're in is a dream. Mm-hmm. Whether it's real or not. Um, yeah. yeah, You know, evil is not that nature. And he believes him. Yeah. And it says, um, Herein did the shape of evil dip his hand and prepare to lay the mark of baptism upon their foreheads that they might be partakers of the mystery of sin, more conscious of the secret guilt of others, both in deed and thought, than they could now be of their own. And so it seems as if young Goodman Brown was truly baptized in that way. Mm. And that's the evil. The evil is that you think more of other people's evil and sin and guilt than you do of yeah. your own. <laughs> Absolutely. More conscious of the secret guilt of others. Wow. Both in deed and thought. Mm-hmm. And so he's judging their thoughts too. Yep. And what he perceives their thoughts are. <laughs> yes. Yep. But that really comes from him then, doesn't it? You know, yeah, especially well, if this is all a dream. Yeah, exactly. Especially if this is all a dream, then, you know, he's imagining what that person is thinking. Or and, even uh, if it isn't, doesn't yeah. uh, the form of temptation show you what you really desire, even though it's something that's empty? Yeah, yeah. And this, this is just about this. I don't know. It's wonderfully woven together in this very simple story. Mm-hmm. It can just be a story of a guy who goes to a witch's mass and is then rightfully suspicious and it ruins his whole life. Mm. 
But even then, what's the point? If it makes your life miserable, what's the point of knowing that truth? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to stand up for sticking your head in the sand, but come on. <laughs> yeah. And I'm seeing, as I'm, you know, scanning through this, looking uh, while we're talking, uh, there are all kinds of clues that it's definitely a dream. Um, there's another line, a stern, a sad, a darkly meditative, a distrustful, if not a desperate man, did he become from the night of that fearful dream? Oh. You know, so it, it states right there. And that's, but he that's, did leave, so he must have fallen asleep in the woods. Yeah. Um, who knows what he was actually trying to do. Mm-hmm. You know? It could have seemed like a nightmare, even though he really went through it. I mean, I tend to go for the dream, um, but it's very real-seeming. Yeah. And if so, you feel like it was influenced. I mean, because when you talk about, if you want to take this back to Christ being tempted in the wilderness three times, no one knows how that happened. Was he really taken up to the top of the mountain and shown the world and said, fall down before me, and all this will be your, or that was all the cities. But anyway... You know, or was it just the mental struggle hmm. with the devil? I mean, we don't know. It's not spelled out, and this is the same here. Yeah. So. I love it. What a good story. What an amazing story. Horribly creepy. And one that I uh, got to read again as soon as we're done here. I got to read it one more time. <laughs> ah, and then we'll have part excellent. two. No. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Yes. No, it's terrific. Well, it's terrific. that's kind of the joy of talking about these things, right? Yeah is fed by each other's ideas mm-hmm. yeah. we, we can see things that yeah and i, I cannot know, wait to hear your ideas on rappuccini's <laughs> daughter because oh i have not read that one before this one i had read before but rappuccini's <laughs> daughter this is the first time i had read it it is and it is water, clearly chock full of stuff and i'm oh, sure God. that i don't have all of that grasped I also don't have all of that grasp, but <laughs> but I have some thoughts. All right, wonderful. So, Rabbagini's daughter was written about ten years later than Young Goodman Brown, and in 1844. Not that that really matters, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And the essential story is that a young man named Giovanni has gone he's from southern italy or in southern italy he goes to the university of padua and he rents a room that's in a tower that Hmm. seems pretty dark the old lady says who's the landlady says oh look out your window it's pretty great Mm -hmm. lots of sunshine (laughs) and he looks out and there's this garden that is really gorgeous all these different kinds of plants none that he's seen before really and Then he sees a beautiful, I can't remember if he sees, oh yeah, I guess he sees the, the, uh, gardener first. Yeah. It turns out to be, Mm -hmm. um, and then he calls, he calls his daughter, I think. Yeah. Professor Rappuccini and he calls his daughter Beatrice, Mm -hmm. Beatrice. And she is young and gorgeous and amazing. This may be nothing, but as you're describing it, it seems it's like a reverse Rapunzel. Oh, <laughs> I but, didn't think of that. That's good. Yeah. I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Rappuccini, whose garden it is, has been tending to the, all the plants, but he gets to this big one with these beautiful purple flowers in the middle. And he calls Beatrice and says, I have to, I can't touch this plant. You know, you have to take care of it. 
Hmm. And she comes out and she's very, she says she's got a bloom so deep and vivid that one shade more would have been too much. She's so full of life and energy and health. And she calls the plant her sister and takes care of it wonderfully. She doesn't have to um, avoid any of the plants that maybe her father wouldn't, obviously wouldn't inhale their scent. So there's Hmm. something strange about the garden. But what's really amazing is Beatrice, who's gorgeous. And he's instantly interested and can't stop thinking about it. And he's talking to his professor, his own professor, Signor Pietro Baglioni, professor of medicine at the university. And he finds out that he's next to Rappuccini's garden. And he's like, oh, I've got a lifelong feud with that fellow. He's terrible. <laughs> And he actually has been doing ungodly experiments in that garden of his. And his daughter's kind of the result of that, too. And he's like, what? No, she's so beautiful. Nothing could be wrong with her. Hmm. And what happens is, essentially, he discovers that, just to cut to the chase, all the plants in the garden are poisonous. And Beatrice has been raised with these plants since she was a little baby. And she also is poisonous her Hmm. breath can kill insects (laughs) he throws down some fresh flowers to her she picks them up and they start wilting noticeably Hmm. but she sees him sneak oh he actually sneaks into the garden you're right that just kind of repuns like rapunzel in in reverse (laughs) because the old lady the landlady says oh you want to get into the garden i know where there's a secret door (laughs) (laughs) we know he sneaks in and then they meet She's oh, don't touch me, don't touch the plant, you know. But she's so happy to see him because she's never known anybody but her father. Mm. And so they gradually fall in love. And he says, ah, this is just intolerable. I can't get her out of here. And his professor says, well, I happen to have this solution on hand that will reverse all these bad um, poisonous inclinations. Just give it to her. Have her drink it. She'll be normal. He's like, Oh, okay. And you think, oh, the professor's a pretty good guy. And he secretly says to himself, and that'll show that damned Rampacini. <laughs> <laughs> I'm better than him. Hmm. So what happens is eventually there's a showdown where the professor's there, Beatrice is there, and Giovanni's there. And the professor says, this is my huge experiment. And guess what? You're going to be her husband or, you know, you're for her. I planned this. And Giovanni discovers that he, too, is poisonous Hmm. because of all the being around Beatrice and breathing in the flowers. And so this was part of the professor's experiment to see if he could gradually get him to take on what Beatrice had experienced since birth. And so Giovanni's like, this is all your fault to Beatrice (laughs) in the finest romantic style. Beatrice (laughs) says, hey, I am a victim here. She says it much more sweetly and nicely than that. Mm-hmm. It's not my fault. <laughs> I was stuck this way. So essentially what happens is that she says, okay, fine, I'll drink this stuff, and then she dies. Uh, I realize that's kind of a, <clears throat> <laughs> uh, you know, she, a shot rang out and everybody fell down dead. <laughs> there were some beautiful speeches while she was dying mm-hmm. about um, – uh, now it matters not. I am going, Father, where the evil which thou hast striven to mingle with my being will pass away like a dream. 
like the fragrance of these poisonous flowers, which will no longer taint my breath among the flowers of Eden. Farewell, Giovanni. Thy words of hatred are like lead within my heart, but they too will fall away as I ascend. Oh, was there not from the first more poison in thy nature than in mine? <laughs> so then she dies. And the worst thing is, at the last moment, the Professor Baglioni looks out of Giovanni's window and called loudly in a tone of triumph mixed with horror to the thunder-stricken man of science, Rappuccini, Rappuccini, and this is the upshot of your experiment. <laughs> Done. Wow. I skipped a lot of great details in there. <laughs> you bet. I think I got the essence of the That's story. That's fantastic. Well, I yeah, I'm hoping that, that when I pass away, I'll have time for a speech like that. <laughs> As you're sinking to the ground? Yeah. Yep. I did love it. <laughs> I would fain have been loved, not feared. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. That's you. Right. If only I hadn't gone into the woods that day. That's no, right. wait, wrong story. <laughs> oh. Oh, so it. in one sense, you you know, you what you point out about the reverse Rapunzel is so mm -hmm. great because it does have the feeling of a fantastic fairy tale. It does. Yeah. Yeah. And and the other thing that comes to mind is some kind of a anti Eden. Right. You know, the Garden of Eden somehow uh, completely corrupted. Right? Yes. And corrupted by science, I guess, or modernism. Yeah, when science is used mm -hmm. for selfishness and not for general good or just, you know, knowledge. Mm -hmm. It's a perversion of the Genesis story. Her father is the garden. He, he has created the garden. Mm -hmm. He has created her. And so, instead of Genesis where God creates the garden and creates man and then woman, he's done it and he's created the garden. He's created woman first. Then he creates man in her image mm -hmm. by making him poisonous. And the only thing that's good in the garden is Beatrice, because she her soul is still pure. Mm. She says, I can't help it that I was made poisonous by my father, mm -hmm. but I will go to heaven. And Giovanni is, it's interesting because he takes this Genesis story and um, he mixes it up with references to Dante. Interesting, yeah. So you've got when the very first part of it, when Giovanni moves into this tower, he says, oh, wait, I remember the ancestors of the owners of this were placed by Dante in one of the circles of hell. And I don't know who that was, and I didn't do very much deep research, so like <laughs> almost none. But what that made me think of, since we've talked about Dante, was mm -hmm. Ugolino. Ugolino. And I think he was in Tuscany, not Padua, so I don't know. But the thing is, is that he was blocked into his tower by his enemies with no food, he and his children. And his children died before him. And the way the place that Dante put him is the clear implication is that he then ate his children to stay alive longer. And so when you think about that being the tower that overlooks this garden where Rappuccini is very clearly given to us as a cold, almost a Mr. Spock-like idea of just logical science. He doesn't mm -hmm. love his daughter. He uses her as a scientific experiment from the time she's born. Yeah, you get the feeling that, 
you know, I, I, I don't recall hearing anything about, you know, Rappuccini's or, yeah, Rappuccini like screaming like, oh, what have I done? <laughs> There's none of that. I get the feeling that he's like taking notes. It's like, that yeah. was interesting. Yeah. Did you when see he what happened there? He's like, this is great. This is fascinating. Yeah. And he didn't even do it like, oh, so my daughter would have somebody. Nope. <laughs> just part of my experiment. Just part of the experiment. Yeah. Yep. Hold still. Let me see how far your breath away your breath will kill things. <laughs> yeah. So it's sort of a science without conscience, mm-hmm. you know, which is a problem, you know, <laughs> Yeah. In, in all of life. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned Dante. I mean, is there anything to the fact that her name is Beatrice? Yeah. And so then, of course, Beatrice is a, a big hint because Beatrice is the guide in Dante's, well, divine comedy the right. whole way through to get him to heaven. Yeah. She sends Virgil to help him. Then when Virgil can't go any further, she comes herself to help him mm-hmm. get to where he can go to heaven all the way, explains things to him on the way. So she's his guide. Right. Well, of course, this is, this is a perver- he's kind of in a circle of hell right there. Mm-hmm. I think I always thought of him looking down on the garden and it was like a big circular area. That's just me. I can't remember if it was described that way. And I don't know if I marked this. Let's see. At one point, though, it talks about him going down to see Beatrice. And oh, here we go. And it's talking about circles. Hmm. And so Mm -hmm. he was wondering at some point, he says, because Baglioni had brought suspicions of of Rappuccini into his mind. So the old lady says, oh, there's a secret door you can go into. And as he's giving her the bribe, he wonders if maybe the professor was involving him or the Dr. Rappuccini was involving him on purpose. It says, but such a suspicion, though it disturbed Giovanni, was inadequate to restrain him. The instant that he was aware of the possibility of approaching Beatrice, it seemed an absolute necessity of his existence to do so. It mattered not whether she were angel or demon. He was irrevocably within her sphere and must obey the law that whirled him onward in ever-lessening circles toward a result which he did not attempt to foreshadow. Wow. And so I thought of two things there. One Mm -hmm. is, is that you're going down into the circles of hell Mm-hmm. And, of course, who's at the bottom is Satan. And you're seeing worse and worse and worse examples of human behavior. And then the other thing is that the first circle is the lovers and various other people go whirled in the air, right? Like mm-hmm. they're pieces of paper. And isn't that lust? Because people who let themselves go to lust just can be whirled around by anything that captures them. Wow. And so... And there, in Dante, we hear the story of the two lovers who let themselves give in to any temptation. They just seize on the nearest excuse and kind of flirt with temptation. And this is uh, the thing that leaps to my mind in Dante. You know, the the last lines in Paradiso are in my head. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I just called it up here. It says, here powers failed my high imagination, but by now my desire and will were turned like a balanced wheel rotated evenly. By the love that moves the sun and other stars. Oh, yeah. So that it's like what you just described is like an anti that as well, right? Yeah. He's not in a stable orbit. He's in one that's going to eventually collide, right? He said a ever tightening circle. And this one talks about a balanced wheel. Um, Yeah. 
and because it, you know, the love that moves the sun and other stars, but that's not what's going on there. Right. Because later on and we find out he doesn't truly love her or not the way that you're describing in Paradiso, which is, that's so great that you thought of that because when he finds out he's poisoned, like I said, the first thing he does is this is your fault. There's no love in it. There's like, yeah. oh, what are we going to do? Now we're in it together. Or I can help you. Mm. Now we can both come out of it together. Or you won't be alone anymore. He's like, hey, I had a real life. How dare you imprison me like this? <laughs> and she says, I never thought of that. All I wanted were maybe a couple of months with you or a few weeks. I knew you'd have to leave. I knew I'd have to stay here. I've always been locked away from people. I was just enjoying your, your company and loving you while I could. Hmm. You know, she was thinking of him. She knew he'd have to leave and she was fine with that sacrifice for him. Cool. There's probably tons and tons more here. Well, and the tie in, and and I hadn't thought of this till I was reading it with young Goodman Brown is that, you know, temptation. Hmm. How do we lie to ourselves and then blame other people when it goes wrong? Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So him, you know, standing outside that door and saying, Hey, even though I feel like I shouldn't do this, I'm going to do it anyway because <laughs> mm-hmm. the drive is too strong. Right. And uh, same thing. Same thing in Young Goodman Brown. Yeah. Yeah. And it kills any love they could have had. Yeah. You know, and his desire to make her into something different, he has that potion. And it's not a bad thing, uh, really, uh, in and of itself, is she could have a normal life if it worked. But he doesn't stop and think mm. about the fact that it's not necessarily an antidote. It's the anti-her. So mm. She drinks it and it kills her. Yeah. And the fact that Baglioni is screaming from the tower, ha ha, Rappuccini, this is yeah. what happens. So he's a mess too. Yeah. There's, there's like no, no good folks in here except Beatrice. Right. <laughs> I know. Wow. Yeah. At first you think that Giovanni is good. He's the yeah. young lover. Right. But he's not. It's horrible. Yeah. My gosh. Um, do you recall if anything was said of Beatrice's mom? I thought, maybe this is just my impression. I thought she just died when she was a baby. Okay. I was just curious. I think that's all it that... It makes me wonder if, uh, you know, it's... Uh, <laughs> what was he trying on <laughs> It makes on me her? wonder if, you know, well, she didn't fit his experiment, you know, so, you know, Rappuccini took care of that. Yeah, let's see. It doesn't say... Baglioni doesn't say. Yeah, I was just and curious. I, yeah. You know, that that's just a thought that leapt in my head. But mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, he clearly, yeah, he 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 had to have a wife. That's mm-hmm. where the daughter came from. Yeah. But Wow. Yeah, it, it's oh, interesting. just reading it through this time, what became even more clear to me was the rivalry between the two scientists. Neither of them cared who they were using and who trusted them. Because Giovanni trusts his professor. And so even though his words of warning don't stop him when he's going to go into the garden, he's Mm. influenced by him. Yeah. And they're both just using the people under their influence for their own purposes. Right, right. There's that science without conscience thing. Mm -hmm. Scientific ambition. Right. Which is no good. And it's interesting that he wrote this, again, 1844? Mm-hmm. When was Frankenstein again? 
That was, was that early 1800s. 1818, maybe? Yeah. I remember, don't we read like the 1816 edition or something like that? Okay. <laughs> you know, so it was yeah. much earlier. So this would have been out. Um, this would have been something that he probably had read. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, 1818. Okay. Because, um, yeah, that, that has kind of a similar theme, right? You know, oh, the, yeah. the, the fact of uh, doing science without regard of morality, you know, yes. as if science was, you know, uh, above that, you know, morals, morals aren't part of the equation there. It's like, you know, this stuff is or isn't, mm-hmm. you know, but, uh, but that's not so. Science done without uh, some kind of conscience is extremely dangerous. Well, that's the thing. And the other really, of course, sad thing is the love story mm-hmm. is that he can see that Beatrice is so much above him or, you know, she's worth longing for. But it does say that, um, let's see, her spirit gushed out before him like a fresh rill that was just catching its first glimpse of the sunlight and wondering at the reflections of earth and sky which were flung into its bosom. There came thoughts, too, from a deep source and fantasies of a gem-like brilliancy, as if diamonds and rubies sparkled upward among the bubbles of the fountain. Hmm. Ever and anon, there gleamed across the young man's mind a sense of wonder that he should be walking side by side with the being who had so wrought upon his imagination, who he had, whom he had idealized in such hues of terror, in whom he had positively witnessed such manifestations of dreadful attributes, that he should be conversing with Beatrice like a brother and should find her so human and so maidenlike. Mm. Wow. And it says, but such reflections were only momentary. The effect of her character was too real, not to make itself familiar at once. And I guess that maybe isn't the best passage, but it, to me it signifies how, <laughs> so many things, how lonely she was and how glad she is to be able to just talk to somebody like this. But also, mm how high her spirit can soar and how wonderful she really is, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Part of that's reflected through his view of her as, wow, she is amazing. But part of it is just reflecting her as a person and nobody ever looks at her as a person. No, they don't. They don't. That was, you know, about the only time, right? (laughs) Yeah. When he could see her in that light. Yeah. And then it became, okay, well, I've got to have her. Yeah, and he can't do anything but admire her personality and spirit and, I guess you'd say, soul, who she is, because they can't even touch. Mm. Not even a ringlet of her hair touches him. Mm. And they never talk about it. It just doesn't happen. Right. Yeah. Do you remember the uh, the the lizard? <laughs> when she was <laughs> yeah. cutting a flower or something, a drop landed on a lizard and the lizard died. Mm-hmm. That was when he was watching from up above. Yeah. He's like, I liked the part where he's in the room and he suddenly says, you know, I look better than I've ever looked. Wait a minute. Professor Baglioni was talking about an interesting scent when I was in the room. Oh, no. That's Beatrice's breath is like that. And so he sees a spider web in the corner and he breathes on it twice and mm. the spider dies. <laughs> yeah. And wow. so there's the spider in its web mm-hmm. who were, you know, invited to think about also the fact that 
whatever is being woven can't mm. survive this poison, essentially. Wow, that's cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. Jeez. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so I have a feeling there's there's a whole lot more here too, and it's delightfully, uh, you know, I guess morbid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's 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 got this quality that's just like, you know, it's a great horror story. Oh yeah. You know, uh, you know, even if you're not reading all this into it, it's just good. Yeah, it's classic like Frankenstein or something or Dracula. That's what made me think of it. It's or something by Edgar Allan Poe where it's just yeah. this it's a vignette of, you know, that perverted good and that's the point of those stories. Wow. So has Nathaniel Hawthorne written anything upbeat? <laughs> oh my gosh, he wrote this one story and I read it on Forgotten Classics and is it called Mr. Bullfrog? Bullfrog is in the name. Hold on. Let me look it up and we can. Was Mr. Bullfrog a miserable sinner? Oh, no. Hold oh, on. Oh, good. <laughs> Mr. Bullfrog. Um, uh-huh. Mrs. Bullfrog. Mrs. Yes. Bullfrog. Okay. It's called Mrs. Bullfrog and it is it is so funny. Oh, cool. It is about a guy who's this very prissy, foppish fellow and he decides he probably should get married and he meets this woman and he does get married and then while they're on their carriage ride back to his home he sees some newspaper wrapped around some of the things in their lunch basket and says oh my gosh I think this is who I married (laughs) and it's just I can't describe it it's just a really funny Mm. funny story I was so surprised to find it Uh yeah so he's written all kinds of things that you know yeah. aren't necessarily weird stories because he was just writing all kinds giant of giant book of short stories yeah mm-hmm. and oh yeah i listened to both of your um both of these stories from forgotten classics oh right yeah rappuccini's yeah. daughter and um young, young goodman, goodman brown and i'm forgetting uh which episodes they were but they were in the 200s <laughs> <laughs> if you go to the library page and yes. look for it. You can find them there. And then I also, uh, we can put links to these in the show notes yeah. along with the one for Mrs. Bullfrog, which is a lot of fun. And also, actually, there's one more that's Halloween oriented that I just thought of. Hawthorne tells his own true ghost story. And true this ghost story. evidently is something mm-hmm. that really happened and he wrote it up as a ghost story. And so I've got that and that. And Mrs. Bullfrog are paired with something else, each of them, but they're fun Fantastic. to listen to. Cool. So we'll put all those links. Yeah, we'll link to them all on the notes. Yeah, and so he wrote all these different stories, and then they were collected into different collections and reprinted the way they would do yeah. for somebody whose stories are popular. I was wondering if there's any significance to the color purple. You know, that was an interesting color for the, for the flowers. I don't know, except that, you know, there are some flowers and plants you'll see people use in their gardens that are purple, and I hate them. Oh, do you? <laughs> they always look to me like something that you should find in the Adams family garden. Yeah, yeah. But that, that not, kind of does give the whole story kind of a, a hue. Yeah. yeah. I mean, not like an iris. I like an iris fine, and it's purple. Mm-hmm. But these are, you know, some of those with those kind of spike-like purple 
leaves or I don't know. You think of deadly nightshade. I don't know if it's purple, but I feel like it is. Uh-huh. It should be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's also mm-hmm. interesting that she was had such rich coloring and it was so vibrant. Mm-hmm. So this, she's flourishing on this poison, just yeah. like these yeah. exotic flowers are. Right, and then so was uh, so was uh, what Gia- Giovanni, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, better so, than ever. Yeah, I'm I'm looking good. Yeah, <laughs> I feel great. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, there's probably lots more there, but surely there is. But yeah, terrific. I mean, wow! Thank you for picking these because I'm glad they're both really great. And yeah, Rappuccini's daughter. This is this is a good story. My gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's it's just so surprisingly fable-like. Mm-hmm. You don't expect it. I guess because that's one of the reasons he said it in Italy and yeah. everything. And the other thing, we were kind of talking about this a little bit, is, you know, he puts these references to Dante in here, just kind of drops them in. And you don't have to know about Dante. When I first read the story, I didn't. I certainly didn't notice anything about whirling circles and that sort of thing. But... In the 1844, this was printed probably in a newspaper or a magazine. Hmm. A lot of people would have picked up on that. That would have been part of a lot of regular, educated people's knowledge base. How cool. And now, Mm -hmm. not. (laughs) Yeah, now I guess TV has replaced that. I guess. It's sad. Yeah, Yeah, I guess if if Hawthorne could uh, dump a... uh, Big Bang Theory reference in there or something. <laughs> Game of <laughs> Thrones. Who knows what? Yeah, Game of yeah. Thrones. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I guess that's right. But interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How, how interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. it says here that uh, it was first published in an issue of United States Magazine and Democratic Review. Isn't that funny? <laughs> it doesn't sound like that should be doing it. it sounds yeah. like it should be whatever version of Weird Tales was out then. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow. December 1844 issue. So it was Christmas story. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Too funny. Well, a ghost story for Christmas, maybe in the English style. Yeah, very nice. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Good. I'm glad. So cool. Well, happy Halloween then. Yes, happy Halloween. (laughs) And thank you. That's great. Okay. So what's coming up? Let's see. Oh. Ah, yes. Infernal Affairs. Yes. Infernal Affairs. Who's in that one? I have no idea. (laughs) We don't know, but we're looking forward to it. Let's see. I'll cut this out. Infernal Affairs. What is that movie? It's Andy Lau and Tony Chu Wai. Oh, So we're ah, all excited about this. this. Yes. (laughs) I had forgotten about this. This is like a, is this a Chinese movie? This is a Hong Kong crime thriller. Ah, Hong Kong crime thriller. Thriller. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, and I was originally dubious of watching it. It came out in 2002, and a friend said, you've got to see this movie. And I thought, Infernal Affairs? I don't know. Mm. Yeah, I get the Internal Affairs, Infernal Affairs. And so, and they said, no, you're going to love it. And oh my gosh, it is a great, great movie. Excellent. Yeah. Cool. I'm eager to see it. Okay. All right. 
it will certainly change the tone. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. That sounds good. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, we'll talk to you in a couple and weeks. Happy Halloween. <laughs> happy Halloween. <laughs> bye bye. Bye.